Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. This is part two of my conversation with J.M. Lilly, Jonathan Lilly. He's an oceanographer, a self-described artist in a scientist body. As you might know from the first part, we had such a fantastic conversation that I decided to split it up into two parts. And it makes sense the split was natural. I think it's natural anyway. The first part of our conversation, released as part one, covers Jonathan's tools for building resilience. It covers his meditation practice, and it covers the meditation session that he ran together with Steve Griffiths at AGU Ocean Sciences. This part, part two, it's a little bit more typical of a climate scientist's episode because we talk about Jonathan's research work. We talk about specifically his work in Lagrangian analysis, which basically just means following parcels of water, following floats. It's where you kind of follow the fluid along with its motion. That's what Lagrangian means. And we talk about his Lagrangian analysis, the work that he's done on that over the years, going back to his PhD program all the way to present day. And we also talk about his pathway into science, which as you might know, if you listen to the show, that's more typical of what a conversation on this podcast tends to look like. So because this is a part two, I'm going to keep the introduction really short. I'll just mention that if you'd like to learn more about Jonathan's work, go to his website, jmlilly.net, and you can learn more there. He's on Twitter, at jmlilly, and I'm also on Twitter, at danjonesocean. For updates about the podcast, you can follow at ClimateSciPod, and that's it. So let's just go ahead and get into the second part of this conversation with J.M. Lilly, Jonathan Lilly, oceanographer. Here we go. Cool, good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's really helpful. Um, and the talk you gave at Ocean Sciences, did you put that up on... Your website? I should have checked, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so that's there. That's there on your website. Yeah, and actually, maybe that's a good segue into talking about science because I can tell you um, that that's. I mentioned that to you before that that's where I encountered your work, mm -hmm. basically on your website. <laughs> I can't remember how I ended up there, but I needed to look at some float trajectories, and I ended up looking at your uh, JLab MATLAB software. Um, number of years ago now, I guess this would have been 2014, 2013, that time. And, uh, and I thought that that was really interesting that, you know, I, I encountered your work first, not through like a paper, but through the software you had made available. And now what we're seeing is that is becoming a more and more common way that a scientist can kind of put their efforts out there in the world. They can say, look at my GitHub repository, look at my software contributions. And, you know, and that, that can be really great because, you know, I, I don't think you and I don't seem to work in quite the same particular area of oceanography, but it didn't matter. I totally was able to, you know, make good use of the tools that you had put out there um, <clears throat> that, that it helped your kind of efforts have that broader reach so, um, so that it'd be cool to hear about your kind of story about how um, you ended up in the the position that you've that you're in now because you, uh, you you do seem to be kind of in a unique position in terms of well not unique maybe that's not maybe that's maybe that's not, that's not quite the right way to put it but 
you seem to be a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of saying, here's my software, you know, worlds pick, pick that up and, and use it. Um, so we could, we could kind of start there and go backwards or I could, or we could kind of, you know, navigate, like, how did you get to there? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great place to start. I'd, I'll tell you in chronological order too for this sure, one. Yeah. So uh, when I was in, when I was in college, um, wasn't sure what I was going to major in. And for, for a brief time, I was studying uh, in the, for a computer science major. And there I was introduced to, to programming techniques, several different languages. At that time, we were learning, uh, we were learning the fundamentals of programming through uh, a language that is really only used by academics called Lisp, mm. which is a, which is a beautiful and, and I would say mystifying language that when you look at it, it seems to have no actual structure. If you think about like 4chan as being kind of like a, a pyramid, then then Lisp looks like just a bunch of animals like interact. And then you're like, but where's the actual program? Like how is it actually getting something done? Uh, anyway, so I was really, really inspired by by that experience. And then I ended up going into oceanography, but I kind of rem- always remembered this this experience of of being in touch with programming mm. as an as a as a discipline as an art form as a science where, yeah. were, you, where were you in college this was at yale at yale yeah is that did you grow up around there or did you grow up somewhere? i grew up in around chicago yeah yeah okay. so you might ask what your what, what were your folks up to what, what was uh, oh sure Sure. Um, so my, uh, my, my dad had a lot of uh, scientific inclinations when he, was, when he was younger, but he liked to joke. So he was, he was actually studying chemistry, I think, in college, but he liked to joke that he, never, he couldn't get his degree because he failed the foreign language requirement, which was German. And, uh, and so he ended up getting a degree in, in industrial sales, which is uh, like a branch of sales where you need a lot of technical knowledge. So he was working in sales, but he was working with things like, um, like, like, like forging and powdered metals and laser etching and um, uh, glass and all kinds of cool, very, very kind of technical stuff. So I got a lot of my scientific creativity from, 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 from him. Um, You know, you know, my mom's story is a bit, you know, a bit of a sad story. She was a person that um, had had a lot of problems of her mm-hmm. own creation. Um, uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you uh, were you like in Chicago, the city itself, or you know, we were you- living in the we were living in the suburbs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, in the in the south suburbs. Yeah. I don't know a lot about Chicago, so I don't I don't have a good way to plug into like you know different different parts of it. But it was a pretty pretty suburban. Yeah, sorry. You know, so I grew up on a street called Pleasant. Okay. I mean, with <laughs> it's a suburb, totally suburban, trees, neighbors, you know, a little park. Uh, you, you can't imagine a more suburban upbringing, hmm. and you know that has pluses and minuses in a way. It's it was very calm and safe, but on the other hand, there's no there's no center to the culture or the society except for the mall. Mm. Uh, the mall was the yeah. place that people would go. And, you know, the, the sub- suburbs of Chicago are, you know, are shocking for their, their homogeneity. You just have 
grid after grid after grid of subdivisions. So, you know, when I got to the East Coast and realized that there, here were like towns that grew organically around a central square when, mm-hmm. with a cemetery next door, uh, you know, it was such a, um, it was kind of like almost shocking feeling of like, I always suspected something was fundamentally wrong with the way I grew up. Yeah, wrong in terms of like feeling over-engineered or over, over-sterilized? Is that fair? De- de- dehumanized. Yeah, yeah. Dehumanized. Disconnected from, from nature and from human scale processes. Right. Yeah. You have to drive everywhere, I guess. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, you literally can't cross, cross a busy road because there's literally no, no crosswalk. That's one thing that I've, I've come to appreciate a lot living in England. You know, we're in a, we're in a town outside of Cambridge and, you know, you can, you can walk everywhere, you know, in this town, you can go to the shops, you can walk. And so even if you're not necessarily having a lot of random social encounters, just even just physically getting out and walking and seeing people, well, not right now, obviously not, not in lockdown, but under normal circumstances, um, it, I don't know, for me, it does help me feel a little more connected and a little more like grounded with like my human experience, just having other people around and being able to walk to the coffee shop or walk to the pub. And um, it's, it's, yeah, so I, that does stand, that experience of being in this small town does stand in contrast to my upbringing, which wasn't exactly suburban. We were in the middle of nowhere, but still we had to drive everywhere. You know, it was isolating in that way. It didn't really. Where feel- was that? In, in Georgia, in Southeast Georgia, kind of near, near Savannah. Um, you know, the, uh, so I, I only mentioned that point to relate to your, like, I've, I've noticed that contrast as well between, you know, a, a fairly isolated kind of homogenized life where you're, uh, and, and a more, and, and a life where you feel like you're in more contact with the, with, with, with different people, with like people from different backgrounds. And it's, it's more organic in that way. But, uh, so it, it, uh, so when you were, so, so you said you kind of had some of those experiences when you moved to college to, to you? Yeah, you know, it's an, you know, an old New England town mm-hmm. and you, you know, there's the buildings are very old, the, the town square is old and it also kind of radiates out from the town center. So you, you really just feel a connection to history and, and growth that you don't feel when you're in a, mm-hmm in a on a constructed grid with no buildings older than whatever maybe the 50s or something like this right. um yeah and it was just such a it was just such a completely different universe to 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 arrive there did you say so you said you studied computer science there or that was one of the subjects you you dug into i was a computer science major for maybe a year before i changed Okay. And sorry, you said you changed to oceanography? Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Cause that is one of the, I didn't, you, you can do undergrad there. I've forgotten that. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, it was a track in the, in the geology and geophysics, which is their earth science department. You can study. So my degree actually says geology and geophysics, okay. but atmosphere and ocean was one track in geology and geophysics. So actually I ha- I'll show you this. It's sitting right here. So I actually, um, uh, ended up winning a, a, a small award for my senior thesis, and they and they gave me this rock hammer rock because hammer. that was the traditional um, 
uh, award in the geology department, even though it was like not about rocks at all. Anyway, so I've got this rock hammer, which actually I realized recently I moved in recently and I realized I didn't have a can opener. So this actually, um, yeah, it's uh, when you're in a pinch, just take a rock hammer to open the coconut milk. That's my advice. They, they knew they're like, even an oceanographer will eventually need. A yeah, that's right. They did. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that was George, George Ronis, who recently passed away, mm. was was at Yale, and he was really the one shepherding the Atmosphere and Oceans program, and a uh, um, editor of, of a Journal of Marine Research for many years, and someone who who um, was really responsible for bringing a lot of people into the field, myself included. Who were some of the other folks that were around? Uh, at that time, so the biggest name that you would know is Mike Mann, the climate scientist. Mike was a, uh, he was a graduate student when I was an undergrad and we were, but classes were so, were so small, um, that, that, uh, there would only be six students, some of them grad students, some of them undergrads. And so I can't remember which class I took with Mike. I think it was a class with, uh, Barry Saltzman, who is a, a, uh, well-known atmospheric dynamicist who has also passed away. Um, so, you know, we would take that and we would do problem sets together. And then, you know, and actually Mike and I had the same, his, his PhD advisor was my senior thesis advisor. So mm -hmm. the stuff that we were working on uh, for my senior thesis and his PhD was te were technically very similar. And then he ended up, of course, going in this, um, in this uh, in this extraordinarily admirable direction of really being one of the the main um, you know spokespeople in the world for the importance of understanding and doing something about climate change. Anyway, I was very fortunate to have got to know him then. Yeah, you're right. He is on on those front lines, isn't it? And he's willing. He's uh, had to take a lot of abuse in that position. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of. Um, just he's gotten a lot of unfair negative attention because he's been willing to you know, make pu public statements about um, you know, the, the climate crisis and the potential responses that are available to us. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that there are some of us who are like really willing to be on those front lines and it, it's a very, it's a very personal choice, I guess, in terms of, you know, we, we all know, how comfortable or not, or how willing or not we would be to, um, you know, to, to withstand some of those slings and arrows. So it's really good. I'm, I'm glad those people are around. <laughs> it's good. To I, you know, me too. And I, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. So, you know, therefore I have a lot of, uh, a lot of appreciation, a lot of admiration for people who are inclined to do that. I'm inclined to do other things. Yeah. You know. I, I think that's, that's obviously totally fair. I think, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong or if I'm mis misstating stuff, but um, I don't know. I, I think you'd, you'd be in a position to withstand some of those slings and arrows in a detached way. And you'd be able to look at some of that and, as an, and kind of say, well, that's just the noise that's there. That's just, the well, you know, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. I, I have to tell you that for mo most, most of my life, I didn't feel that way at all. I would mm. get very upset about that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and, um, but that, that does seem to be, uh, something that's been shifting for me recently is I, I feel um, like, you know, and again, I think this is attributable to the Dharma practice. I recently, uh, and this is actually relevant to tell you about this experience. So, you know, putting up this stuff now about uh, 
trying to analyze what's happening with the coronavirus and and I've been really surprised with the the extent of of intelligent and civil discussion that's now taking place on Facebook and social media. And then I had this one guy who just like completely went off, you know, in the way that people do. But what was really curious about something I posted, what was really curious to me was, you know, I read what he wrote and it didn't perturb me at all. I just thought, wow, this guy seems really like he's really been out of shape about this. <laughs> and and, and that, that was a first for me because, you know, like like sometimes like you'd get upset and then you'd look at the upset and you'd say, um, like, oh, well, I don't need to get upset about this because blah, blah, blah. But that's not the case. I, di- I just didn't get upset at all because I saw the situation as, wow, this guy's like got some, you know, like he's having some issues and he's like basically like letting it out on me, but they're his issues. And uh, anyway, so, so that was a first. And I was really, really happy to have that experience. And it didn't make me think, okay, well, well you know, maybe, um, yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll we'll head more in a in 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 a in a direction of being public in the future. We'll see. That you were able to say, oh, oh this person's reaction isn't about me. Like this isn't yeah. about me. This is about something else. And Not that I, I could say it, but that I could perceive it that way. Like my perception of it was like that. That was really different for me. Right. That you had somehow become a symbol, I guess, to this person of everything that you know made the, at least in that moment in that post in that you know that, that you had become a symbol of all the stuff that this person was frustrated about i'm guessing i haven't seen that well it was funny because he, he 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 actually had a good point he had a good point mixed in with a massively overblown emotional reaction mm. and and so i answered him and i was like oh that's a good point blah blah and his next post, he kind of apologized for having gone off the deep end. And I thought, okay, well, that was like, that was nice. You know, that worked out as well as one could hope for in that particular medium. Anyway, right. I didn't mean to, dis- to derail us from where we were going. No, no, it's all good. I think the diversions are, are great, honestly. <laughs> like, I think, I think they, um, there's a lot of good stuff in there. We shouldn't, we shouldn't pass it by. We shouldn't pass up those opportunities when they come along. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's so interesting. We are learning to navigate that world where everyone has a keyboard and everyone has a platform and everyone is able to just you know event immediately yeah so you you studied oceanography at yale and then where'd you head off to after that right so there's a really funny story there's a couple of really funny stories in there which i'll tell you um so so george veronis he was responsible for my career in oceanography twice the first time was because when i was i started getting dissatisfied with being a computer science major and i thought like it'd be really nice uh to like i don't know i just want to do something different and i was looking through our course catalog and thinking like what am i going to do and um and i kept coming back to this this like earth sciences program I like earth. I like science. This sounds really good, but I was really stuck on it because like at that point it was second semester. It was almost second semester, sophomore year. And I would have missed certain, like you had to have year long prerequisites, which would have already started. Hmm. And so I thought there's no way I could possibly do this major because I just don't have the prereqs. But then I kept thinking, I thought, well, like what if I took the year long physics out of order? What if I took the second semester of physics first, then I could do it, which is insane. And, and so, like, I went to talk to George, and I said I'd like to major in, um, 
in, in this department. And he said, but you haven't taken a single class in this department. I said, yeah, I know. And he said, okay. Um, and then he started asking me like about the classes I'd taken and the grades I'd got. And apparently he wasn't dissatisfied with that because he then said, okay, you can, you can do it. So thank God he let me in and didn't think I was crazy. <laughs> so then I showed up in, uh, in first day of second semester physics and there are integrals with a circle around them. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> it was really funny. Anyway, so that was the first time. The second time was when I finished, when I finished, um, college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought, well, maybe I'm going to be a climate scientist and try to help us understand the climate system better. Because obviously, if people knew, I think, obviously, if people knew that human actions are causing global warming, they would change their actions, right? Obviously. <laughs> and and then I thought, well, but maybe on the other hand, maybe I'm going to, going to pursue this Aikido thing, which I've been training in. So I only applied to one graduate school. I applied to, to University of Washington Atmospheric Science which was the best program in the country at that time. So I could be a climate scientist and uh, I got, and I got, uh, I got, I didn't get in. And uh, George who had been on vacation or something, uh, I can't remember why he was away. He, he found out that I had got, got rejected. And he also found out that I only applied to one graduate school and he was mortified and he called me into his office. And this is like, I don't know. It's maybe like two weeks away from graduation. Like everybody's got plans for what they're doing except me. He's like, would you like to be an oceanographer? And I was like, what, I, like, you know, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about here? He's like, well, you know, I don't know anybody in atmospheric science, but I've got a colleague at the University of Washington who could use a student. And I said, but I'd never applied there. He's like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and I'm like, but all the deadlines have passed. He's like, that doesn't matter. Do you, would you like to do it? And I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I didn't have any other plans. So that's how I became an oceanographer. It was because of George. Can you believe it? That's great. It changed my life in that moment because he was so, he really wanted to see me in science. And, 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 and it was like a complete left turn. I had no plan to do oceanography. And yet, you know, when I saw how Mike's career was going, I thought like, man, I'm so glad I'm in this field where you can think and you don't have to do all this political stuff. And anyway, and I feel like it just is, was such a better suit for my temperament that I felt really, really grateful for that, that stroke of good fortune. That is something fortunate about oceanography, at least from, from where I'm sitting as well, is that we can decide how much or not we want to engage with some of those, the political kind of element of it. And, and when we do, it's almost on a more, you know, personal basis as opposed to, it's not, not necessarily a professional one. You know, we, um, we have that kind of flexibility and I, I guess the people working in climate science do as well. They can decide that same thing for themselves, but, but yeah, that's, that's great. So, so, um, so he saw this potential in you and he said, uh, he saw this pathway for you. He said, there's a possible way that you could go. You know, here's an option for you. So that's, that's great. And so you went to Washington. Yeah. He never said anything like, Oh, well, you'll be a great scientist or something, but he, he just called Peter, Peter Rines, um, who I guess he knew and explained the situation. Do you want a student? And Peter said, yeah. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up at the university of Washington. Yeah. Yeah, well, in, in terms of potential, you know, I just meant like he saw, oh, this this person's good, and I would like them to continue to do good things, and I yeah, want to help. Yeah, I, I I imagine I imagine that he did. You know, I imagine that he did. So I'm grateful for that. 
is that uh, so peter reins is that who you ended up working with yeah he was my advisor yeah okay cool what did you work on for your PhD? well in my phd i i studied the um the the labrador sea which uh, well you're looking at we got the, ba- the your background uh, is is greenland right now so it's between greenland and labrador and um it's uh, it's a region that's important uh, because of the it's in, dynamically interesting also climatically important because it's the formation region of one of the major uh, water masses of the of the North Atlantic the Labrador seawater that happens during ex, during really exceptionally extreme uh, deep convective mixing that takes place during the winter yes. and so I was uh, so Peter uh, who is who's a theoretician primarily had a mooring there, which was, I think, you know, really, I don't know that it ever had a mooring before. It was, it was kind of a new thing for him to, to, to do this, these observations. And so basically I was given the mooring data and that was what I started with for my, for my, um, for my thesis. And, uh, it was a time when there was develop. We, we were there a couple of years earlier, but a couple of years after that, then this whole big laboratory CDB convection experiment rolled in and the whole place got really kind of energetic, but also crowded with mm. a lot of activity. So and anyway, it was a great place to, it was a great mm. thing to have worked on. And, um, yeah, the, uh, the Labrador sea is pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, um, it's a, I know a little bit about it, from uh, I've only got one paper on it, but it was uh, it was a nice paper to work on, and I I was really struck by a few aspects of it of uh, that that you can get when you we talk about exceptionally deep mixed layers. I mean, we're sometimes talking about a couple kilometers. That's right. You know, yeah, of, two kilometer mixed layer. Yeah, it's yeah, a couple kilometers where the density basically doesn't change more or less, and that's that's hard to picture in in your head. But just you know, um, I was talking with. Uh, you just you know keep going down 100 meters 200 meters 500 meters uh, who was it i was talking with who was describing the process of measuring the labrador sea and just getting the same reading back you know every time um oh, it was joellen russell joellen russell was talking about that that was one of her early experiences so there was a morning there and so were you studying what what was the sorry you may have said but what was what were some of the instruments on there what was the oh the mooring so the mooring had uh, current meters temperature salinity a few places it was pretty sparse there weren't more than 12 or 13 instruments were you studying and that was like all we had all we, it was all we had we had maybe at first a year and then two years of that mooring then there was a german mooring that that was nearby that i also looked at second year were you studying mixing in that context, I guess, from, from working with Peter or? Well, well, so um, the thing was that, that, you know, Peter, Peter had a lot of ideas about what I, what I should look at. And he, um, you know, he's of course someone that has a, a really deep understanding of theory and, you know, he was in teaching classes about like wave mean flow interactions, like whatever lies and palm fluxes, like all kinds of, these these things and i wasn't really relating to it at all Mm. and and he he, you know there were questions at the time i can't even remember but people were wondering about the the deep convection is it is it completely mixed whatever um like but i i just wasn't connecting with with where he was coming from which was as i said earlier kind of here's the theory let's go to try to prove something or disprove something and so at some point i i was like all right like it was one of these moments where you think like, 
like I've actually got to get something done here. And so I thought I've just got to do this the way that makes sense to me. And I started basically just going in my own direction and I started looking at what was actually in the data and what was actually in the data were these really intriguing anomalies. And I started looking at these anomalies and trying to understand them and, um, and, and realized that nobody was looking at these because I don't know. One, one scientist I talked to said, well, why don't you just filter them out? Why don't you just filter, why don't you filter them out? It just wasn't an interest. And, and so in fact, at that time, you know, when you're young, you're very kind of fragile. And I, I had a, I had a list of like 10 like top scientists who all told me that I was crazy. Why don't you filter them out? Um, if you can't see it by eye, then it's not worth looking at in the data and, oh. and so forth. And basically everybody was telling me that like what I was doing was a big waste of time with one exception and then exception. Well, one and a half that Canute Agard, who's a, uh, scientist at the Applied Physics Lab, a very, um, very esteemed Arctic oceanographer, he he would say things like, "I would present what I'd done to my committee, and they'd be like crickets because oh. nobody was happy." Oh, and yeah. then Canute would say something like, "You know, Jonathan, you've got a really interesting way of looking at things." <laughs> and and thank God because that because because he had this opinion, then other people couldn't like, uh, you know, like destroy me too much. Right. And, and so, but in the end, what ended up happening was these anomalies are meaningful and they are the signature of coherent vortices being swept past. And from that single mooring, uh, I was able to construct a picture of what the eddy field is like in that region. And it ended up being uh, what seems obvious now, but at that time, there was all this work by John Marshall and friends uh, that the deep convection is kind of happening in isolation in the middle of a basin that there's nothing around and it's driving these instabilities and shedding eddies and so forth. And what the data was showing actually was that eddies that were there were coming from the boundary current instability. And so then there was this whole thing of, well, actually a convection region is not isolated. You have to, like the zeroth order description of convection region is convection interacting with eddies drifting in from the boundary current from a completely different source. And that in a way was a little, I mean, not like it's a major discovery, but it was a mentality shift in terms of how we think about convection versus the surroundings. You have to think about them together, not separate. And and that was a story you can tell from a single mooring. And so that, that was really... Uh, that was really fun, and and it got you know that work got um, got people's attention, especially after I coupled it with uh, altimetry, where I used uh, the long track altimetry to to get like cross sections through individual ideas, and you get the same story. So mm-hmm. so yeah, that's the story of my thesis. And again, this is like I was saying earlier, seeing a, how there's observationalists and theoreticians coming at things differently. I recognized then that I was really relating to things observationally. And so I've tried to, you know, continue that since then. Right. And that makes me think of the talk that you gave at, at Ocean Sciences. Um, I happened to, I saw your talk, which was the very first thing on Monday, um, Monday morning, the first talk of the first day, which uh, 
gave you the opportunity to say, well, I'm glad to get this out of the way right now. And then the rest of the week yeah. is completely free. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in that talk, you, you were, you were also looking at individual eddies and trying to identify individual events, um, you know, using drifter data and kind of filtering that drifter data in different ways. And, um, and also just kind of list, listening to the data in the way that you're talking about, you know, you weren't coming at it. Yes, you were using statistical tools to describe it, but you weren't trying to fit it to an existing theoretical picture. You were kind of trying to listen to what the, those statistics were telling you about the drifter track data. That was my takeaway anyway, um, from, from what you were doing. I can, um, sorry, could I <clears throat> cough for you? Um, yeah, so that that's uh, after your PhD. Uh, where'd you what did you end up doing? And I'm, I'm not just trying to march you through the whole chronology. No, 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 no. It's great. It's great. Um, this is no, and actually, this is great because it's giving me a chance to say a lot of things that I I really would like people to know about. It's like you hope that younger scientists are going to listen. Well, you know, older scientists too. But there's so many things that I wish I understood when I was younger. Um, so. So, so after that experience of, of, uh, of finishing my, my PhD, and, you know, as I was saying, it was a feeling that I had of, um, like, I've got to make this work because there's not a plan B. And I'm, I'm going out on my own intuition. I'm going, you know, uh, ju basically jumping in the direction of my intuition because I don't know anything else to do and it's not going to work out for me otherwise. So, and then in the end, like, so, you know, when you're young, you're gambling everything. There's my whole career is on the line and nobody was basically like telling me to do this. So, so in the end, you know, also thanks to some very helpful support from people like Knut and uh, Mitsuhiro Kawase, who was also really supportive of me, then, then it worked. That was a really magnificent moment because I thought, okay, if I can like go on on my own direction, trust my intuition in a stakes, you know, where everything's on the line, then 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 that's a skill that I can use. And so then then for my uh, my postdoc, I I um, had the feeling that that the kind of data that oh, so let's see, go back, fill in the gap. Um, I started putting in my my encounters that I'd had with time series analysis, which I learned from at Yale. Um, I happened to be at Yale when um, when this new fancy thing called wavelet analysis was uh, like Yale was one of the places where that was really coming uh, in like of its own. And like I happened through a fortunate series of events for a project. To to get to use an early version of the wavelet transform, and uh, and then work that into my senior thesis. So I knew about these time series techniques, and then in graduate school, I kept thinking like, you know, I can really use these to to do new things that other people aren't doing. And and then when it came time to to go to to do a postdoc, I thought, okay, well, you know, that's been well received, and when something is well received, then you think. Like not you're going to sit on your laurels, but okay, I've got some space because you know, um, you know, people liked it, so I can really take a risk. Now's the time to really take a risk, and and then 
I felt that the kind of data that had really the most potential was Lagrangian data because there's buckets of it. It's really messy and people were not doing very sophisticated things with it at that time. So I went to a postdoc with a, with a wonderful um, scientist named Jean-Claude Gascard in Paris, who is one of the like real old time experts with Lagrangian data. And I, I set about investing in creating uh, some new tools that we could use to extract eddies from time series in a, um, in a rigorous way. And that problem, which I started in around uh, in 2003 or four, um, turned out to be much harder than I thought to at least solve it completely. And it's taken uh, like, I don't know, a half, there's been a half dozen key papers that each took you know a year or two of effort along the way to get to the place where you um, where you uh, where the, where the talk that you saw. But what's been magnificent about that problem is it's really reached out very deeply into uh, totally unexpected areas uh, that that I've been fortunate to be able to. Uh, kind of like doggedly track down where all the implications are leading. So which, um, so when you say that to completely solve it, are you talking about specific bits of the method that, that needed to be worked out or was it more like interpretation? <laughs> um, what are the bits you're trying to solve when you say that it took a while to solve through individual papers? Um, yeah, all, all. So the, the the general the general problem is an, you can frame it as an inverse problem. You have an instrument. So we've got all this Lagrangian data. It just drifts around with the water. Yeah. Now, in general, it's very difficult to to uh, um, to know what to do with that. So people will just take a, take means in two dimensions to to get a map the mean flow but then you lose all the structure hmm. so one one aspect of the data that really stands out as like asserting itself as wanting to be um as being ripe for study are the signature of of eddies which we know these long live vortex features they they can transport a lot of heat they can move plankton they can be the most energetic thing they can live for like some of them can live for years. They're really one of the outstanding features of of uh, geostrophic turbulence, and and they stick out like a sore thumb when you see them in in the uh, uh, in the data. However, the like it's an inverse problem. So I've got a complicated turbulent flow. I've got an eddy. There's an instrument in it. The instrument observes a trajectory. The tra trajectory has some little curling structures in it. What was the eddy that made that? And so, and so that's obviously a, you could say it's an under, underdetermined inverse problem. Um, there's questions of the the technique. Um, there's questions of statistical significance. There's questions of interpretation, which gets into possible um, possible dynamical evolutions of of eddy structures, which which gets into um, like idealized solutions. There's questions of of uh, integral relations, like um, Stokes theorem, that that come up from this. So there's 
and then there, then there's yeah, um, then then that's even before you get to questions of like, well, what is this telling us physically about what these do or how long they live and things like that. So yeah, it's been um, it's been really fun to work on. I never expected it to work to work on it for so long. I thought I was going to get it done in a few months. <laughs> And it just continues. Um, you may have mentioned this in your talk. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, Dudley Chilton is a name that that I hear a lot in terms of. Uh, there was like I think a two thousand four paper where he talked about a method for automatically identifying eddies from from data. Does your work relate to to that in any way? Have you used any of those kind of same methods or? Yeah. You know, so Dudley, so there's a similar, you know, objective. D- Dudley, who who's you know really a giant in um, in in uh, I would say obs- satellite observations, especially, uh, had this monumental paper where he's seeing all these eddy anomalies from uh, from Aviso from the satellite altimetry um, that they're, they're they see, they seem to be everywhere much more than we we would thought and so that that was a you know hugely influential paper that led to a whole whole, whole lot of activity um, the data that I'm working with is generally Lagrangian data and it's a totally different perspective and the way I'm approaching it is is I would say different because um, you know like I like to work on problems where I don't have to rush uh, hmm. for the results. And so, like, there's no nobody else is is doing this, so I can really take the time to to do it. Um, like, I don't like to, I don't want to get something and then think, oh well, you know, uh, that's actually not what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So I'm maybe may, you know, some people would say, oh well, that's not very Im- impactful if you're so if you're so. Uh, um, you know, so careful, mm-hmm. but, but I think actually that this, this is a problem that really calls for being very systematic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so yeah, like, I think that down the road, like one of the proposals that I have funded currently, the end goal is comparing like our stuff with what, with what Dudley stuff is saying. And I think that that will really learn that there'll be really a lot to learn from that. Is this, um, <clears throat> just kind of, thinking of how your work relates to other uh, other folks i know like andreas clucker has done some work looking at deriving things like diffusivities you know these kind of mixing coefficients from lagrangian structures um and i'm i'm a little more familiar with his work just because he's done a ton of southern ocean stuff which is my my typical region so are you learning things can you learn things about mixing and the process of mixing by looking at your Lagrangian data, is that part of of what you have done? Yeah, yeah you can. So, like the way that we view um, that the the trajectories is that there are a composite of different kinds of processes that you add together. One kind of process you would say is like um, like a turbulent process, and the other kind of process you would say is like an organized eddy, and mm-hmm. And the, the techniques for um, analyzing these two parts of the same time series are completely different. So we did turn our attention to understanding the background, and we came about it in a little bit different way from from others. And uh, um, uh, wanted to create a stochastic model that matched the observations. 
And, and this was also a really interesting uh, project to be involved in because uh, we found that, um, so you're, when, you, when, you, when, you look at a, when you look at a trajectory, there's two things that your eye is drawn to. One is the smoothness of it. Is it rough or is it smooth? And, um, and that the smoothness is, is related to something called fractal dimension, a very beautiful but completely useless mathematical property. And it's also related to the frequency domain slope. Um, so if you have a slope of a certain amount, then you know the fractal dimension is like this. And that also implies a certain kind of um, self-similarity in terms of scaling. Hmm. And it also implies roughness. So those are all the same thing. And then, then, then the second thing that you see when you look at a trajectory is you look at how quickly trajectories tend to expand from their initial position, and that's diffusivity. <clears throat> but the problem is that if you have a, a sloped process, so the name of a sloped process, if it's minus two, um, uh, that's Brown, Brownian motion, spectral slope, yeah. that's Brown, Brownian motion. And if it's not minus two, if it's something else, then it's fractional and Brownian motion. So there's a, a hugely um, uh, innovative paper by uh, Manelbro called uh, Fractional Brownian Motion in Gaussian Noises, something like this, that really put the fractional processes on the map. And but, but the problem with those is when you have these, these fractional processes that give you the right amount of roughness, then you have... Uh, uh, diffusivity that increases unboundedly, so infinite diffusivity. So obviously that's a problem. So we found this. Um, my uh, my my uh, colleague uh, Adam Sikulski, who was working with me at that time, uh, also um, Sofia Olheda in uh, currently in Switzerland, was closely collaborating with me for for many years. Then uh, Adam recognized there was a process that was known from geosciences called the the Matern process that had both a finite diffusivity and a slope. And uh, we, we showed in, a, I think, a 2017 paper that that, uh, that, that is equivalent to damped fractional and Brownian motion. Anyway, this is a long answer to your story. But damped fractional and Brownian motion turns out to be three parameters. Uh, turns out to be a really good model for what's happening in, uh, in a typical uh, drifter trajectory. I can make a set of fake trajectories that look like they came out of the ocean that have only those three parameters. And then you add in some loops and then, 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 then that looks like eddies. So, so anyway, so through that, I started thinking a little bit about diffusivity, but honestly, like the whole diffusivity thing, like I know that everybody loves to look at it. Um, I was at a, at a meeting recently with a bunch of other Lagrangian people. And, um, and I was thinking, man, like, what are we really learning from this diffusivity? Not much. And so, you know, I said, there was a discussion time. I said, honestly, I think we need to reassess our relationship with diffusivity because we've spent so much time calculating it. No one knows why. What good is it doing it, doing us? And I said, you know, I think we need to break up with diffusivity. And all the old guys started applauding. <laughs> and I was like, great, man, I'm not alone. That's fantastic. Well, that's getting back to your tendency to say theoretical pictures are, are great. Sometimes they're useful, but let's don't, not get too caught up in them. Let's remember that we made them up to try to understand the world and that, you know, the, the, that 
ultimately we might need to change them and ultimately they might be limiting. There, there are things we constructed to help us get to grips with the, the data that we're looking at and the world we're looking at, but um, keep coming back to the fact that uh, we don't know how to describe the world. We, we, we have learned a lot about it, but we shouldn't pretend like we have settled on the optimal way to understand the world in terms of concepts, to understand the ocean in terms of concepts. So it's like you're go back to the data, go back to the data, go back to the processes that are happening there and stay open to new possibilities. That's kind of what it, what it made me think of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there, there's this problem of momentum, which is that, that when someone looks at something and then another person does pretty much then everybody does. And then if you're going to do a new thing, then you think, well, all those guys have looked at this thing. But if you're looking at a thing, not because you know that it's useful or you can see that it's useful, but just because it's tradition, you know, that's not really such a good idea. So I think that's where we are now is like, it's just tradition. I mean, if you think about it, the advective diffusive model is like, like you really have to bend over backwards to, to think that that's how the ocean works. It's clearly flawed. And, and yet we keep hanging on to this, this diffusivity thing. So I think there's so many more interesting things to do. And that's why I try to get involved in, pro- in problems that don't involve it. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that, that makes me think about, um, so Th- Thomas Berner, uh, he's a stratospheric dynamicist. And uh, I think it was back in 2013, he had a big paper basically saying, because uh, to, to back up for a little bit of context, you know, when, when you're looking at potential vorticity in the ocean or in the stratosphere, the common conceptual picture is to say that it oh, it diffuses, you know, down, down gradient. And you know, Thomas and uh, Thomas Berner and David Thompson, and I think there was somebody else in that paper, but I can't remember the third, third person, apologies to the third person. Um, they, they pointed out a region in the stratosphere, you know, near some jets saying, but you can't find places where the PV is, you know, going upstream. It's going what looks like the wrong quote unquote way. And it, it was interesting to think about that um, they were able to kind of break that simple picture a little bit into saying like, well, that's, that's obviously, that's been a useful picture for a lot of the stratosphere, but that's clearly not the whole story because we can find places where that condition's violated, where we need to rethink our, our model. Um, so that's that's great, and it's it's important to have you know people like yourself with that uh, shifted perspective who, who are who are willing to uh, willing to dethrone our current you know inter- kings of interpretation. I don't mean people; I mean the concepts that yeah. we hold kings of our <laughs> of our interpretive picture. Um, I guess to, it, that takes a certain level of of security in yourself, doesn't it? And it takes a certain level of. Uh, you know, there's, there's a temp, there's, I think there's a temptation, especially for a young scientist to say like, well, I guess, I guess I better try to get on board with a lot of this stuff because I feel panicked and I feel like I don't have a lot of time to be questioning the fundamentals. I just need to get the next paper out, you know, but, but that's sort of, uh, that's, that's sort of, um, can be an anathema to, a real freedom and a real creativity and a real willingness to, uh, to, to question old pictures and to yeah. question old concepts. So it, it's uh yeah, so you've, you've gotten, you've cultivated that. Yeah. Well, I've, thank you. I've, I've really tried, you know, even since the very beginning, I, 
I tried to always make an intuitive foundation for myself. And I think it helps to be very skeptical. So I never really felt like I understood something unless I could put it on my own intuitive foundation. And, and along with that, you know, you, if you notice there's, there can be a tendency for like wanting to establish the pecking order Mm-hmm. And not wanting to be wrong, and always like if you've got a student, obviously you don't want the student to be right, and you 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 be wrong, you know. And I I've always thought this was very silly. So I remember one time I was telling a friend like, you know, I just don't don't really understand whatever, and and the friend like basically he started lecturing me on like trivial facts about this particular problem. And I'm just thinking, dude, you don't understand it either. Everybody knows that stuff. I mean, I don't understand it. I have a friend, a friend, friend of mine in Norway, Olandos Nust, who uh, he's moved on to industry now, but um, he, he would just, you know, he would just be completely honest and vulnerable and say like, you know, I've spent so much time under, like working on this and I just don't understand and I think it's really, really important to be able to say, like, I don't understand. And so if we can say, I don't understand and, and not have it be like, oh, you just fell two rungs in the ladder. You don't understand, you know? So because I've, because I've always been, like, trying to assess my own foundation and, and because I feel like, you know, it's okay if the student or whoever says, oh, you made a mistake. Oh, well, thank you. You know, you know, great. You uh, assign error. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that takes, you know, that takes some graciousness and not, not a foundation in yourself where your foundation is that you're better. Mm-hmm. Anyway, because of those things, then you're free. You can say, I don't understand. You can say, my, my perspective is like, is this really useful? Yeah. And, and, uh, and then you can have a discussion about it. Not like I've got to be right. But I just want to open the doors to saying, like, you know, let's really look at this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Another person, another researcher who's good at that is is Ryan Abernathy. He's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really good about being being honest and and vulnerable in that way. Um, so, for example, you know, there's a process that gets talked a lot about in the Southern Ocean called lateral induction, and um, this uh, the, the concept or the hypothesis is that. Oh, in lateral induction, the main currents can transport stuff across sloping mixed layer bases. And, you know, actually at that Ocean Sciences, uh, where I saw your talk and went to the meditation session, you know, he was very willing to just flatly say, like, I don't get that. How does that work? Like, the densities are so different. How do we get, how do we transport stuff by the main current in, into mm. out of the mixed layer? And... I, I, uh, to, to be vulnerable myself, I was like, how have I not thought about that? Like, how hmm. question that I was almost embarrassed that I hadn't questioned that idea hmm. enough and said like, Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. That's yeah. A yeah. Point. I, I feel like, so, um, I've had great fun rethinking that paradigm and understanding where it came from because yeah. it, it, it came from, you know, kind of a lack of, time resolved data and you're like and, and that so it, it came out of it came out of a certain era when we just didn't have enough data to really you know grapple with the, the full complexity um sorry but now we're starting to to enter a period where we can deal with the full complexity of that situation a little bit better
Sorry, I just had to cut. No, cough. no problem. Well, well, well. Let let me just take this opportunity for a little meander that will sure. reach us back um, to connecting to previous conversations. So Ryan Abernathy, you know, someone I have great uh, admiration for, and uh, we had started talking earlier about you know me getting started in programming, whatever. And so when I when I got started in in uh, actually it was in college, MATLAB was new. It had started like a year ago. So I got started programming MATLAB had this background in, in, in software um, uh, um, as, a, as, a, as a real like scientific endeavor. And so I kept that all the way through, through, through grad school where I was thinking, you know, part of my job is clearly writing software. So I wanted to do a good job at it. And at that time I was in touch with some friends in the, in the software development community who you know, they were developing these great practices like aversion control was like just becoming a thing there. And um, there was a practice for a while called extreme programming where you would have one person programming. This is, they're doing this in industry, right? Where they have resources, one person programming, another person watching that person programming to look for typos and stuff. And then they switch. So you get two people at a keyboard at all times. Test-driven development, you write the test first, then all the tests fail. Then you write the code that makes the test pass, and then you've got a whole test suite that's that's um, available. Nobody at that nobody was doing testing at this time. Automated mm-hmm. testing. You would just go back and look through the code. Oh, I've got a bug. Search through bug. So I started writing tests like very early on because I thought that sounds like a great idea, and and um, and you know at some point there was a. I, I remember thinking, either. I'm going to just keep having to like cludge my way through all of this code that I have, or I'm going to really organize it and, and, and make it available to everybody. And so I spent a year or two making it as organized as I could put it out there. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I was inspired also by, there was this idea of, uh, um, um, what was it called? complete uh, reproducible reproducible research mm-hmm. that was a very influential essay that that the it that the the scientific paper is only the advertisement for scholarship and the actual scholarship is in the code so i made a point of trying to do all this stuff be very open from the very beginning nowadays uh like and that was the time when nobody was doing it nowadays like i'm almost like a grandpa because like the kids they're using GitHub, Python. I don't, you know, it's much more collaborative. There was nobody to collaborate with when I was doing it. So I feel, I'm feeling honestly, you know, a little bit behind the curve. And I'm, I'm just watching um, how much great stuff uh, Ryan is doing, mobilizing forces, um, you know, create how this great community is building. Anyway, I think it's, it's a really, um, it, there, there's so much, um, of a transformation that's happened in the community since the time I've been in it. And it's just very exciting to see where that's going to go. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been trying to wrap my head around you know, like doing GitHub and co- contributing to packages and contributing to projects. And it sounds like a silly realization, but I had it about a week ago where I, f- I finally got my head around like, Oh, so when you submit a pull request, you're saying, I have worked on your code. Here is something I would like you to include. <clears throat> and part of what clicked was like, oh, this is a social interaction. This mm. is like, this is <laughs> that, that software development is a social interaction that just involves 
you know, in, instead of just a conversation, it also involves software. It also involves mm-hmm. passing lines of code back and forth. <laughs> so it's just nice. happening in this curate, in this online environment. And so the, the rules for that social engagement are, are different and there's different conventions that are emerging and different and helpful practices and unhelpful practices and a whole new, new set of uh, things to learn, um, <clears throat> which is great, but that, that has such a good potential to accelerate science and it's already doing it. You know, it's, it's helping in that, in that way. This is great. I think this is going to be a two part episode. I, I see like the first part is like, could be all the Dharma practice meditation. Sure. The second part could be all this great, all of the great pathway into science stuff. Wonderful. Um, so the, uh, can I ask if you don't mind, um, I was curious about, you know, so you're working for a research institute. That, yes. Yeah, and, and you don't have a, what's the name of it again? I'm sorry. I've forgotten the name of the. It's called Tice Research. Okay. Right. T-H-E-I-S-S. And it doesn't have a physical location. People can live you know, wherever they are living yeah. and work for that. How, how have you found that experience you know, relative to an academic one? Because- right. Uh, well, so, so to answer this question, you know, again, to give a bigger context, I, I realized at some point that um, like it's not realistic to think about having a team because there's no jobs and I'm not sure I would even want, want to, to do that. This was also at a time, you know, when I was getting started, there really were, there was like university of Washington went 20 years without hiring anybody. And, and, and so, you know, like in, cause I wanted to do soft money research, you know, I thought there's, I've got to, you know, just take care of my, myself and that's all I can do. I can't really hope to have a team. And furthermore, you know, partly because of that, but also because of just, um, getting in touch with my own personal inclinations. You know, I really like working by myself on things that take a long time. I don't really like organizing other people. And, um, you know, like there's a whole set of things that you benefit from when you're working with students, for example. You're giving to them, they're giving to you. It's very beautiful. But for my science, I really like things that take a lot of concentration over many years. And, and that happening mostly in one person's mind. And so because of those two things, I, I just you know, saw how those were fitting together. And I was, um, I, I, I've worked for a couple of different nonprofits, um, also in, or not nonprofits, but different research institutes that are more, more like a traditional department just on soft money. But I thought, you know, I'm not really benefiting from these so at a certain point, I, uh, I took my big computer home and I just started working at home. And then I thought, you know, I'm still Skyping all the same people. I just don't have to take the bus for an hour. And I just really loved it. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then, um, then I thought, but why am I paying all this overhead? Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't make any sense. It's just evaporating. And I felt, I mean, not just personally, but I thought that doesn't make any sense from the point of view of like the taxpayers, like the taxpayers are not giving money to support buildings and secretaries and computer, you know, like IT guys that just make your life more difficult. Like they're giving, giving the money to, to, to have like results. And so Jurgen Tice is a friend of mine I've known for a long time. And he um, is, a, is a very entrepreneurial guy. And uh, when he was uh, early in his like postdoc phase, 
he was looking for a place to be a soft money scientist and couldn't find one. So he thought, I'll just make my own. So he started his own company, which was like, I just, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to think about doing this. So now he's got, I don't know, 20 something scientists that work for him in all different fields. And it's extraordinarily bare bones. I think the overhead rate is maybe like, I can't remember. It's like five or 10%. It's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And there's one employee and that's Jurgen. And so if you want to know anything about anything, I mean, maybe he's got somebody working with him part-time doing data. I don't know, but it's mostly just him. So if you want to know anything about anything, you just call him. He knows the laws backwards and forwards. He knows everything about everything basically. And he's just super generous with his time. And whenever I talk to him, I feel happy. I feel, oh, wow, like we're on the same page about like science being like about making the world better in some way. And so I just am so happy to work for him and to to have the kind of freedom that that I have. And I, I, I know like a lot of people think it's weird that I like just work alone. Uh, and uh, but I but I love it. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it does. It would take a lot of. Uh... <clears throat> vision and like uh like you're you're the <clears throat> to start your own company you have to like see the potential in something and really believe in that potential and say i'm going to champion that i'm going to champion that potential and take take advantage of that opportunity so yeah that, that's that's great it's a really mm -hmm. it's an interesting situation uh <clears throat> a friend of mine who is in solar physics has ended up in a i think they do have a physical building but in the states anyway you are seeing you know a, a, certainly more than like when i was starting 10 years ago you, you do see more of these kind of independent research companies that mm -hmm. they're, they're, they survive by winning grants and they survive by having very low overhead like you said it's, it's a really interesting completely different model um so I, uh, you've been really super generous with your time. This has been so awesome. I've really, uh, I really loved all of this. Um, I like to usually kind of wrap up. I don't want to cut us off if there's other stuff you want to talk about, but I usually kind of um, wrap up with a short, short, short-ish set of questions about what you've learned along the way. Um, so I'm happy to take us into that, or if there's another bit you want to just let's, 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 let's do that. And, but let me just take a quick break and then we'll come back in two minutes. Okay. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll start the podcast soon. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> great, great warm up. <laughs> I'm reminded, uh, there's a, there's a great, uh, director who I, I like very much. He's named Werner Herzog. And uh, he likes to mix reality and, uh, and, and imagination. And he'll often interview people, but then he'll only, he'll use the parts of the interview that they don't know that they're being recorded mm. and to hilarious uh, results. So, you know, uh, just to tell you that I'm, I'm onto, onto that. So I'm prepared. Oh, no, I, I know. I could tell you were onto that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, it's it's not meant to be a trick, really. But it is. I know, I know. You know it's th there is part of what I wanted to avoid was, um, you know, sometimes when people go into, uh, oh, I'm being interviewed mode, uh, the walls kind of go up and they mm. get a bit um, quiet and they don't necessarily, you know, say a whole lot. And that's that's part of why I try to share bits about myself and my experiences and my life. I try to be a bit a bit open. Mm -hmm. 
even if, you know, sometimes the way I do it, um, it feels a little awkward or it feels like I'm maybe not saying things in the best, the cleanest way, but I'm just trying to say, I'm here with you. I'm, I'm going to share stuff too. And I'm, you know, the, I'm, I'm one, I want to make this like a real conversation and be present for it and be here with you. Um, <clears throat> which is part of why I, I try to, I try to share stuff, but, um, this is uh, this has been great. I really appreciate all this. This is fantastic. Um, so the 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 uh, yeah, this definitely will be a two parter. So you know, the first part because we've spent a good uh, a good nice long like a long time, yeah, long time talking about meditation, and now we've yeah. had a really substantial science chat as well. Yeah, yeah. So just to wrap up, and uh, there's I like to ask what you learned about different things. So what, sure. what's something. What's something you've learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with it? Oh man, there's so many things. Um, there, there, there was a, you know, honestly, of course you don't really know when, um, when you're starting what science is like. Um, there, there was an initial idea for me that because I told you I was interested in like climate change, environmentalism, and so and so forth. And there, there, this is gonna be a long answer, and so I just just tell you, um, there there was a realization for me sometime in graduate school of realizing, wait a minute, like this is not actually like really activism. This is not really about like changing the planet in some way that I thought it was gonna be. And that was a real shock, and I would say it was almost traumatic to have that realization. But then, then I started thinking, well, you know, I'm here in graduate school, so I might as well, um, I might as well, like, just try to see what it's like to be a scientist. And so then I started approaching science. I didn't have these language at the time, but I started approaching it from that objective point of view we've been talking about and trying to see what it was actually like. And to my surprise, I found that I actually really liked what doing being a scientist is like and i also found that you know when 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 you look at because of course the people who come before you um they're they're like your your role models in a way and you can look and see okay like oh i want to be like that guy or whatever i want to do that kind of work i didn't see any anything not to say i didn't have a lot of respect for the people that came before me but uh i didn't resonate with the the whole i didn't just i didn't resonate with any one particular person about oh i'd really like to be like this person mm-hmm. and you know i come from my background uh when i was in uh, high school and also in uh in college i was interested in science the other thing i was interested in was creative writing and i knew there were a couple times my my path normally almost went to fiction or or poetry and mm-hmm. so i always had this very creative artistic um you know, side of myself. And, and, and at some point I, I don't remember even if I, I did, I think I did think about this consciously. I thought like, I've got to figure out a way to do science in a way that, that uses all that part of myself. Mm. And, and over the years, from time to time, I still do a little bit of creative writing, but over the years, um, you know, the, uh, the deep 
fundamental connections between the scientific process and the creative process become more and more apparent to me. Like I have a friend who's a novelist and talking to her about what she's doing is so reminiscent of what we do. And so, and that was something I would never have imagined kind of looking at it from the outside that, 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 that it's so creative and because it's so creative, that means it's emotional. And because it's emotional, that means it's about being attuned to your internal state, to your, to your hunches, like a, like a detective who just suspects something. And so, you know, I would never have guessed that science was so irrational. But from my, from my point of view, like the thing I love about science is the irrationality and the art, artistic and the unexpectedness about it. And that's not everyone's point of view. People approach, some people like really are motivated to categorize, for example, or to fra- framework things. And for me, it's about the, un- the unknowing. And uh, anyway, so there's been, there have been so many beautiful surprises, both with myself, by myself and also with collaborators, where you get to the end of a paper and you think, I would never, ever have imagined that working out like that. How would you ever figure then? And, 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 and the way that science can go from point A to point B, just following the way that things are moving. Maybe you have an idea like, I think that like way in the distance, there might be like a city with like gold streets or something. But the way to get there is just navigating through intuition and through the tools of science. And then you find out, wow, this is a really interesting place. It's not what I was expecting, but wow, it's really cool. I got to invite some friends here. Then you go out and you give a talk about it. So, so I would never have, have imagined all of those joys coming out of science before actually experiencing them personally. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. That's really nice. I really appreciate that. That's um, the, the creativity of science and the fact that you're, you're constructing something and you're, you're finding your route throughout there. So there, there are some really strong parallels between <clears throat> that scientific activity and things like writing and things like painting and things like dance and things like all those things which we normally think about as artistic pursuits. Yeah. We, we normally think of science and art as so orthogonal, but they're really uh, different expressions of the same thing. Uh, I'm probably over, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm okay with that. I'll, 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 uh, I'll be, <laughs> I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and why don't we end with, with uh, this one, because I, I kind of want to hear you expand on this a little bit more. Um, part of that creative process and part of just being alive is dealing with uncertainty. So I wondered, what have you learned about dealing with uncertainty that you didn't know, um, you know many years ago or when you were first starting down this, this path? There's a lot to say about that. The first thing, you know, the first thing that you learn about dealing with uncertainty is that if there's one thing that is inevitable, it's that you're going to have to deal with uncertainty. And therefore, you really should learn to deal with uncertainty before you encounter uncertainty. <laughs> and and when when you're young, you know, like you're very wrapped up, okay, I was very wrapped up in what I was doing. I didn't really like, not, not that I felt 
like I was disregarding others, but I just didn't see that I had any need to learn from people who came before me who were saying things that I couldn't relate to about in case you encountered this problem, you might need to know. Like I, it seemed so far away. I was very busy trying to do what I was doing. And, and so that was really short-sighted because of course, you know, in hindsight, you think if I had only picked up some more tools uh, when like earlier and really prioritized them, then, then things could have been a lot easier for me. But, you know, um, I think there's a, there's a sense of like almost panic that I've got to keep working. I've got to keep getting stuff done. I don't have the time for myself. I don't have the time to sit down and read a book about meditation or a book about, you know, um, like, like dealing with uncertainty, like, you know, as a new graduate student, your advisor's like, where are the plots? You know, you're supposed to make these plots. (laughs) And, and so to, to, to be able to make that kind of space for yourself requires a lot of assertiveness uh, and and a, and a holistic view about life is not just about science. Life is also about how we navigate these things together. Um, so that's the first part, learning about uncertainty as it's something you really need to know about. The second thing that, that I would say is really crucial to know about uncertainty is that it all depends on your point of view. And if you have like the right, um, not right, if you have a certain alignment in relation to everything happening around you, then then uncertainty is not really a problem because you're rolling with it. If you have a lot of attachment to the way things are or whatever, then um, then no matter what happens, you're going to have problems. And so that's just a shift that you make internally. Like, for example, I remember watching, I think this was a couple of years ago when there was that, um, whichever hurricane it was that just was dumping torrential amounts of rain in Texas. And you see these pictures of people's homes that were completely flooded and they're going through and they're picking up, you know, picture albums or furniture or whatever that's just been devastated. And, and people's reaction is, oh, wow, how tragic and sad. I hope that doesn't happen to me. And I remember thinking like, watching that and thinking, you know, uh, I better have less stuff. Like I better like not be too attached to my stuff Hmm. because, you know, that's the lesson when we see things like that is not that it, it, it's so tragic, but like, no, that's the uncertainty of life. And those things are ephemeral anyway, even if they're not currently being flooded. Yeah, and that the the attachment causes suffering. That that's you know, resistance causes suffering. Maybe, maybe resistance causes suffering. Right, right, um, right. and that get that gets. Oh, go ahead, sorry. go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, having a little bit of connection issue, but yeah, like resistance to the way things are, and resistance to the way things can potentially be. That that's the root of a lot of suffering, because you know if you're fighting internally and saying, well, things should be different. They should be this way or that way. That takes a lot of energy and it causes a lot of friction. But if you're able to make the shift and say, well, this, this is how things are, you know, say yes to it, accept that this yeah. is how things are and, and try to roll with it, try to adjust with it and try to recognize that this is just um, life and existence that, that seems to be 
rolling along according to a certain set of laws. You know, we, we know a little bit about the physical laws. It's, it's the universe doing its thing. It, this is the uh, lawful unfolding is a phrase that I've heard before. Ah, interesting. Wow, that's a great phrase. That's Isn't nice. It? That really makes me think about entropy. Yeah, yeah, I love that one. Law, lawful that's unfolding. Lawful unfolding. Yeah, <laughs> nice. There is something in place, some kind of order ish some kind of rule ish i guess that, that things seem to be uh, obeying uh, but what, whatever it is it's it, it's the universe doing its thing it's one big thing uh, obeying a certain set of principles of, from what we can tell and uh, and you, you you can go along with that and you can roll with it uh, or you can fight it <laughs> and you can that's wish- right that's right you know and those those things are out of our control and so um it's guaranteed that things that are out of your control are going to happen to you. And therefore it's guaranteed that they're not going to be according to your wishes. And so when we talk about the skills that a person needs to uh, like, I like to think about surfing, you know, like if you're surfing, you're, you're not getting or, 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 or skiing, like you're not upset about the obstacles you're going around them, you're using them. And, um, and the the whole skill is being able to navigate, not to not have any obstacles, but to navigate. Hmm. So the skills we need, you know, we need we need to be nimble, we need to be observant, and we need to be present, and uh, and we need to go with the flow. And and I would say that like those skills map very nicely onto what it takes to be a good scientist. You need all the, the all those same skills too. Absolutely, and part of being a good scientist is dealing with the uncertainty, dealing with rejection, um, listening to feedback, listening to sometimes very critical feedback without getting personally attached to it. Um, well, and like you mentioned, um, you know, Hey, the font of this journal is ugly. That's maybe not the best example, but it's the one that came, came to mind and, you know, being willing to take that on as, as some, and, and to pass it up the chain instead of, of resisting it. But, um, that, that's, I, uh, yeah, I, I think, the idea of um, non-resist, practicing non-resistance and practicing just accepting that things are the way they are has been the source of a, a little bit of peace for me lately. I'm That's definitely, definitely not claiming to have mastered it at all, but just recognizing that things are transient. Um, I like this phrase about, you know, you're a wave crashing on the beach. You know, you are, you are the universe doing a thing. You're not. You're not an object, but you're an. Ex- you're an event. You are a thing that is happening right now, and you know, just like a wave appears out of the ocean and then crashes on the beach and then returns to the to the ocean, you know, you you are a thing that has happened, a thing that is happening. <laughs> um, that there's somewhere you came out of something and you will return to something. There's a, a, a cycle to it. Um, that's, that's been kind of the, and, and as you mentioned, it's, it's ephemeral that all, all of the stories we construct and the narratives that we construct, they can, they can go away quickly. And the, um, well, I'm, I'm not trying to force this too hard, but to bring it back to the kind of pandemic that we're experiencing, you know, this has been a very, uh, very visceral global demonstration of just how fragile uh, life can be and just how fragile society can be. And it's really um, given us a, cl- a clear example of, yeah, the the virus. It's just it's just a little bit of geometry. It's just it's literally the same kind of stuff that we're made out of, just configured in a slightly different way. And obviously, it's it's scary and it's intimidating, and I feel that stuff too. But I'm also sometimes kind of amazed at the like. So you just take a little structure 
and you, you make something that's it's the same stuff that we're made out of arranged in a slightly different way. And it can cause us, you know, as a, as all the billions and billions of us, uh, not everybody, obviously, but it can, it can make us pause. It can make us like rethink the way we're doing all of society and it can make us kind of retreat indoors. Um, I'm going on a tangent, but all I was kind of saying was like that the virus situation, the pandemic situation is just a reminder of that, of the ephemeral kind of nature of our, our existence and of the society that we're, we're constructing and that um, that can be a scary thing or there can be some freedom in it if you are willing to say, yes, that's how things are and I will accept that and I won't resist the fact that that is how um, life and society seems to be. Then, And it, it's up to us to kind of construct the best kind of um, you know, world and society that, that we can that we can uh, largely through kind, you know, kindness is a huge part of that. Um, trying to understand other people's perspective, trying to come at it from a perspective of, of uh, love. Um, yeah. It's uh, there's a lot to, to dig into here. And I, uh, I feel my kind of fr- frantic energy is, is taking over a little bit. So I, I don't want to. <laughs> no, 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 not, not, not at all. I mean, I, I, um, I concur with all that you said about that. And I feel, you know, you can really see that there's a lot of um, angst right now around wanting things to be different. And yet, at the same time, if you you look at it, uh, there are also a lot of opportunities that are afforded by the situation we find ourselves in. Not to say it's not tragic, but if you just think about, like, personally, how you want to organize yourself... There are a lot of ways that people can uh, really see that it's an opportunity rather than wishing things to be different. Um, around the wishing things to be different, I, I just wanted to kind of touch back in on the meditation practice from earlier. One of my teachers who who um, I have really, uh, I only meditated with, with him, I think, for one retreat, but he really made a big impression on me. He said that... Um, he said that meditation is about learning how to grieve effectively. And mm-hmm. at first I, I, you know, that oh. struck me. Yeah. 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 It's a powerful a, phrase, isn't it? It is. It's, it's wow. That is powerful. Yeah. And, and grieve, grieve in the sense that we're talking about right now in the sense of everything is changing all the time. And, and you have two choices. You can either grieve a little bit moment by moment, when things change, or you can be forced to make a massive adjustment later. And that's why we have the midlife crisis is because people have not updated. Like if you get, like what happens is you get to a certain point in your life and realize that it doesn't go on forever. Well, guess what? You've been misinformed because you should have figured that out a long time ago. So I think that's why we have these kinds of of traumatic, um, periods of traumatic growth is because people do not have the skills to unattach the things as they're happening. And therefore you have to go through it all at once when you're really forced to, and that's much harder. So going back earlier to saying, you know, young people, well, everybody, but especially when you're young, investments that you make in developing your mind and your equilibrium really go a long way um, to having more of an experience of like, you know, we're just, uh, we're just all, you know, snowboarding down this mountain together as the mountain tries to throw all kinds of crazy stuff at us. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a really, really nice image, really powerful kind of quote and really nice image to to, to wrap things up on if you're feeling okay with wrapping things up. That would be great. I think we pretty much crushed it. I feel like we did. Yeah, Yeah, it was a (laughs) great time. I had such a good time. Thank you so much, Dan. Me too. This was really wonderful. Yeah, I really enjoyed this this chat. And um, I know that there's going to be people who enjoy it as well. I, I hope that uh, I, I hope that people really can can get into this and can enjoy it as much as as we have because it's been so it's been so fun. Nice, nice. Well, yeah, Jonathan. Thanks again. And um, yeah, I, I hope to get to talk to you more sometime in the future. It doesn't have to be on the podcast. We can talk. <laughs> not record it sometimes yeah yeah not record it yeah well it's been it's been first of all like i just you know thank you so much for for um for for doing this kind of thing i think it's such a great great service to to the community and uh and you know the the community is dispersed and maybe not huge but nevertheless you know things like this can can really help to disseminate information um, very efficiently that is relevant to all those people. So so I think that it's just a fabulous thing that you're doing, and uh, really am uh, honored to to have been invited. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's nice of you. To, nice of you to say. Well, thanks and take care of yourself. Stay well, stay healthy. You too. You too. You know, wear a mask. Don't, don't lick things, you know, wear gloves, all that stuff. Wash your hands. Wash your hands, fist bump, or not even like six, six feet. And yeah, we'll see, we'll see what the crazy world is like down the road, huh? Yeah. It'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. It'll be a few months, but, uh, potentially, but we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. And, uh, Thanks. That was wonderful. That was really, really. All fun. right. Thank All right. You. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. See you. See you around. Bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Jonathan Lilly, oceanographer. A big thanks. Thank you again to Jonathan for taking the time out to talk with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I got a lot out of it. I hope that you all did as well. I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're feeling all right. I hope your loved ones are all right. And no matter who you are, you're an amazing miracle. You're the only person who's just like you. And I hope that you can feel that sometimes. Might seem like a weird way to close out the episode, but uh, no, I believe that. I feel that. And I hope that you get to experience that sometimes as well. So yeah, please take care of yourself. You know... I hope that you can feel peaceful sometimes. I hope that you can feel all right. I guess I'll just leave it there. Take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones. And I'll see you soon. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. I'm just going to let it play out. Bye-bye.